welcome to King's Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about King's Church, visit kcnyc.org. Everybody give it up for Nikki on the keys. Thank you, Nikki. Yeah, I would, I would keep her up here, except I just don't think that my preaching sucks that bad, that I need a piano player behind me. Um, but some people do. And um, I always get creeped out by preachers who, who like have like piano players behind them because I'm like, are you trying to like manipulate me emotionally here? And um, they are, they absolutely are. Let's pray and get into the Bible today. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its truth. I thank you that it has the power to change our minds and renew us so that we know what to do, how, how to walk in newness of life. And Lord, we know that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word to help do that in us and through us. Holy Spirit, speak to us through your word this morning. And everybody said, amen. So this morning, uh, Pastor David and his wife, Bethany, are out of town, um, out in Canadian, yes. I said out like a Canadian, and I'm sorry for that. But um, they are out of town. They, are, they did a memorial service for Lee and Julie Watson. Um, and they, Lee and Julie Watson, I mean, if you haven't already heard, they lost their four-year-old son, Finn, um, to a heart tumor. And so... Uh, Pastor David did the memorial service yesterday, and it was amazing. He told me on the phone yesterday. It was just an incredible time. But um, with the snowstorm, he was, he was supposed to be here. I was not supposed to be preaching, and I resent the fact that he asked me to preach um, because it's just unfair. And life is supposed to be fair. That's actually my favorite scripture verse. Life is fair. <clears throat> And so, um, Pastor David, uh, with the snowstorm and everything, he just, he was just like, I can't make it. Our flights are all messed up. So they're flying in tomorrow. They're not even going to be here today. So the whole family has been, they've taken a Sunday off. So unfortunately, you have me. <laughs> and, um, and so we're going to uh, jump in today and talk about, this is going to be a topical message, um, which I kind of go between topical and expositional, um, and I don't really care whether one preaches topically or expositionally as long as they preach exegetically. In other words, as long as you're getting what the Bible says, it doesn't necessarily matter how it happens. Although uh, it is normative to, to have, you know, expositional preaching, and it's probably just better for people so that they kind of walk through the text uh, organically. But we're going to talk about baptism today. Pastor David asked me to talk about baptism. So we're going to jump into that. And uh, first of all, what I want to talk about as an introduction here um, is um, the, the, the call of the Christian life, the universal call of the Christian life. And here's the thing, <laughs> I'm not the, the preacher, and I've said this before, I keep reminding you, but for people who come, you know, and they're new here, they've never been here before, I'm, I'm more of a teacher than a preacher. Pastor David is the one who's gonna yell at you, and I'm the one who's going to say something that is, that is going to cause you to walk out. So, <laughs> it's like when he yells at people, nobody, nobody leaves. But then when I'm like very calm, cool, collected, people leave, people walk out, they're offended. So it's, it's, it's uh, you know, it's ironic. All right, so don't you think? So the idea here is um, I'm going to be going through some teaching. So you'll, if you want to take notes, I encourage you to. Um, but there's something called the universal call of holiness that's upon us all. And... Um, the truth is that um, Jesus calls his disciples 
uh, to respond to him. In the Christian life, uh, in, in evangelicalism particularly, we sometimes preach a gospel that's, uh, that is uh, what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Cheap grace. And if you, don't, if you haven't read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, um, I think it, it's an excellent book among his other books. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a wonderful German Lutheran theologian, and um, he died in a Nazi concentration camp like four days before the Americans rescued them, which is bad luck. <laughs> it really is. But, um, but it's actually not luck. It's the Lord's desire that that happened. Um, but Bonhoeffer was an incredible man of God, and, um, and really, his death in the concentration camp it provides the capstone for his life, which was a life of uh, sacrifice. And he famously said that when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die, which is a profound statement that I'm still figuring out what it means. So um, it's wonderful. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about cheap grace, and um, the idea here is, is that God expects something out of us. There is an exchange that takes place, um, and when we become Christians, we are saying to Christ, you are my Lord. And the unfortunate part uh, in our evangelical culture is that we, 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 we absolutely crush the part where uh, Jesus becomes our Savior, and we totally fail miserably at him becoming our Lord. But uh, when, when we become Christians, uh, we have to recognize Christ as our Lord, which means that he expects us to respond to him um, in three ways, uh, by believing in him, um, by becoming like him, and then by belonging to him. The, so that the believing, becoming, and belonging, those uh, three uh, things form like a, the trinity of re representing our response to faith, hope, and love. We believe in faith, we become by hope, and then we belong by love. And so the, the whole point, though, is that as we exercise faith, hope, and love, we are being uh, connected, we are being um, reconciled back into relationship with God. We, uh, the, the theological virtues are the ones that are horizontal. They're the ones that connect us into relationship with God. And so without faith, hope, and love, we have no relationship with God. And um, we, we may have moral virtues, which are horizontal virtues, like justice and wisdom. You know, Aristotle was a just and wise person. He had Aristotle being a, a, one of the greatest uh, pagan uh, philosophers, he had these general horizontal virtues, but he didn't have a relationship with God. He had no relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so what is connecting us is faith, hope, and love. Um, but the purpose for all of this in the Christian life is that we become holy. It's that we become holy. And I want, I want to uh, emphasize this, um, that a lot of people talk about the love of God, which is a wonderful thing to talk about, um, and they're like, it's all about love. Well, it's, yes, in, in a sense, love is that centerpiece. However, um, God's love is holy. God's love is holy, which means that everything, every attribute of God is actually um, uh, qualified by his holiness. He has a holy love, a holy hope. Uh, it's our holy faith. The Bible is a holy Bible. Holiness is the call of the Christian. Ultimately, we are to be holy people. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16 says, It is a holy God who has called you. You too must be holy in all your ordering of your lives. You must be holy, the scripture says, because I am holy. So God's call is to make us holy. So what is holiness? Holiness is, um, I'm going to give you uh, 
some terms here, probably five different terms here. Uh, holiness includes all of these terms. Uh, a big word, a big word. Um, I don't like using long words and big words unnecessarily, but this one means something big, so I'm going to use a big word. Um, and uh, the word is sanctification. Holiness is sanctification, which is really the Latin term for holiness. Uh, holiness, I believe, is a German word, and so sanctification is the word that in, in the Latin they translate the Greek word for holiness as sanct sanctification, but 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 8 says, this is the will of God. You know, <laughs> again, how many times do we ask what the will of God is for our lives, right? God, what do you want me to do with my life? What do you want me to do? Okay, well, here, here's the first thing that God wants you to do with your life, right? This is, the, this is what's called the general will of God, right? And this actually is very helpful because it, it, if you prioritize this will, this is the first will of God for your life. And really, ultimately, this is his ultimate will for your life. His ultimate will for your life isn't that you're an amazing singer. Here it is. Here it is. 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Everybody say sanctification. I couldn't hear you. Say it one more time. There we go. Your sanctification, that you abstain from immorality. It actually, the, the, the Greek there is sexual immorality. But then he goes on and he says, For God has not called us for uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, not Gabe, who's reading the scripture, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The Holy Spirit's job in your life primarily is to make you holy. So God has given us his spirit to make us holy. The next uh, definition of holiness is purity. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, um, it's true that the pure in heart will see God because only the pure in heart would want to. I, I actually, I think it's funny because I think God's funny, but I think it's funny that there will be people who get to heaven and they're like, I didn't want, I don't want this. <laughs> like the things that you want in life, those are the things that you get. If you hunger and thirst after righteousness, when you get God, you'll be like, I love this. I love this. When you get to heaven, you'll be like, this is, I love heaven. Because it's all righteous. It's all pure. There's no impurity. There's no evil. But some of us, we're like, we like our little demons. Right? We like the little evil things that we do. We love our sin. I love my sin. I don't know about you. That's why I sin. <laughs> I sin because I love it. Um, so the whole point is to change your desires. To turn your desires into pure desires. And that's a deep, deep thing. Because you're dealing with the root of what motivates a person. The thing that nobody sees. And that nobody really even knows. Even when you tell them what your motive is, there might be a, a motive behind the motive that only God can see. And so God's desire is to make us pure in heart, which is holiness. Virtue is also another word for holiness. Virtue, which is uh, the, the, a good habit. It's just when someone says, oh, that's a virtuous person, they have a good habit. So if we're talking about the virtue of temperance, they exercise temperance or self-control in a, in, a, in a way, in a pattern in their life, so they have a virtue of self-control. Um, Galatians 5, 22 to 23 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, one uh, talks about um, being imitators of Christ. Um, sorry, the next word for holiness is Christ-likeness. 
Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So Christ-likeness, if a holy person is like Christ. And it's interesting that Paul says, be imitators of me. You know, he's saying, I am actually somebody you should follow. You know, if somebody, if I said that to people, they'd be like, what a, what an arrogant, conceited, evil person. Paul the Apostle's like, no, follow me, follow me. Yeah, imitate me. So, in that sense, he's putting himself above people in his character and in his virtue. I don't think that's prideful uh, for him to do that, um, but I do think that should make us think about how sanctification works in life, because there's a lot of people who are like, you can't be sanctified. There's no way. Nobody can be sanctified. Nobody can be like Jesus. We're all sinners. We're all miserable wretches. You know, all the, like, the Calvinists, they love that. They love how miserable you are. They love, they love to just, like, you know, roll around in the, in the mud and, you know, <laughs> dwell on their wretchedness. But it's like, and I, I agree that we have to be minutely aware of our wretchedness. We do have to actually look at ourselves in the mirror as a woman would look at herself in the mirror, right? Women take great pains, some of them, to make themselves, um, you know, enhanced, shall we say. Let's use, a, let's use an appropriate euphemism here. I don't want anybody to walk out on me. <laughs> and I'll, I'll stop the jokes right there, okay? <laughs> but the idea here is uh, <laughs> women take great pains, do they not? You know, to look at themselves in the mirror and like look at ev- all the little things that are going on in their face. That's actually, I mean, looking at ourselves in the mirror, that's actually how we're supposed to live the Christian life. Like, how many of us have looked in the mirror spiritually and seen the guck and seen the problem and said, you know what, I got, pro- I got problems. I got something to work on here. Holy Spirit, help me. Give me some foundation. Give me some, you know, eyelash stuff or whatever. I'm trying to relate it to the women here. Trying not to mansplain the whole time. Anyway... Holiness is, holiness is transformation. That's another word, transformation. Uh, the Greek in uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 for transformation is metamorpho, metamorpho, I believe. And it's where we get the word metamorphosis, which is the, the picture of that. We've, we've put that into um, science. Science has adopted that, and we use that for the, the cocoons phase of the caterpillar turning into the butterfly. And that's, that's an accurate description. There's a transformation. There's a metamorphosis. Um, in Romans 12, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, transformed, metamorphosized by the renewal of your mind. So there, the transformation should be taking place in our lives. I should be different than I was. I should be different than I was. Um, I should be on a journey of transformation. I should be walking down the road saying, Lord, uh, thank you for progress. I'm a progressive. I'm a progressive, folks. Okay, I'm not a conservative. Some of you guys thought I was a conservative. I am. I hate conservatism. <laughs> the conservatives are the guys who never change. Uh, I want to be changed. The difference is, is that as a progressive, I know where I'm progressing to. It's not aimless. I don't have this, uh, this kind of sentimentalism in my progress. I am making a progress towards the image and the likeness of God in my life. And so I want to be transformed and changed into his image. Amen? And then the last term is perfection. Perfection. Matthew chapter uh, 5, verse 48. Perfection is the final stage, the final phase. And uh, Jesus says, you therefore... Uh, if you want to be, can be perfect. No, 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 it doesn't say that. It says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus makes no bones about this. It's a very simple statement. You must be perfect. Must, it has to happen. 
There's no bippity-boppity, oh, wow, I'm a, you know, I do think that some of us think that heaven's like that. Like, we're going to have bitterness towards someone in our hearts for, the re- for our whole Christian life, and then we get to heaven, and God's going to be like, guess what? You don't have any bitterness anymore. <laughs> you know, you're perfect. And we're like, yeah, I am. And then you see them in heaven, and the bitterness comes back. <laughs> You think God, do you really think for a second that God's going to let you into heaven with bitterness in your heart towards a person in here or, or a member of your family, which is probably why half of you moved to New York City? <laughs> I hate this family. Where are you going to go? New York City. <laughs> it's true though, right? You know, we've all, I've had issues with my family. I, like, killed half of them. No, I'm kidding. That's why I'm in New York. I'm on the run. <laughs> okay, so the idea here is we have to take this seriously in the sense that God is after perfection in our hearts. And I believe that, so in, this, in, in, in the notion of purgatory, right, that's a Catholic idea, but purg, purgation is not a Catholic idea. Being purged is not a Catholic idea. Being pure is not a Catholic idea. And all of those words are the root word of purgatory. And what I believe is that this is purgatory. I believe that this moment right now for all of us who are Christians and saved, God is working out our salvation in us. He's working it in us so that we can work it out. God is at work in us to perfect us. And he will settle for nothing less than perfection. Which means that we have to keep doing it and doing it and doing it until we get it right. And I don't believe that changes simply because we're at the gates of heaven. I actually think that some of us might get to the gates of heaven and God says, I want to let you in, but you've never forgiven your father. And I'm going to play the video for you again so that you can do it now. Because in here, there's no corruption. In here, there's no evil. And you can't bring your vices into heaven. You can't bring your problems in here. What, what I love about the Holy Spirit is that he's in it for the long haul. What I love about the Holy Spirit is that he's not going to give up on me even though I fail. Do you see what I'm saying here? The Holy Spirit is your, he is, he is given to you for eternity. And so in our relationship with the Holy Spirit, he sanctifies us. And so, so the idea here is I'm building this case here for holiness. And I want you to understand that the purpose of grace in the Christian life is actually to make us holy. God's desire for you is to be holy is to be transformed, it's to have virtue in your life, it's to be pure, it's to be Christ-like, it's to be uh, perfect, and God will settle for nothing less. But, here's the good news for some of you who hate that. (laughs) For some of you who are like, that's too much weight. That's not why I'm here. I thought this was yoga class. Here's the thing. God has this huge weight upon us to be, to grow and to mature. But he gives us the means to do it. He doesn't say, he doesn't say to, like he, like, like basically, as he said to kind of the Jews in that sense, here's the law, now try to keep it. What he said was, to, in, in the Christian life, in the Christian covenant, here's my desire and my ideal and my goal, which is the perfection of your soul, which is to make you like Christ, and here's the means by which I'm going to help you to do that. And that is what we call grace. Grace is God's love and power causing good in the soul of his creature. That's a proper definition. It's his love and his power causing good in the soul of his creature. He wants to cause good to you. And so his, he is the source of all this power, this ability 
to change so that you don't have to look at our ideal and think, I can't do this because it's, I don't have it inside of me. True. Excellent. And that's why we're not Buddhists. <laughs> that's why we're not Brahmins. That's why we're not Eastern religion people. That's why we don't have the power within us. You know, you, you are not a god, okay? You can't do it. I mean, in those cultures, they think you literally are, right? If you were in India, they'd be like, you are one, you are a god. I am one god talking to many gods. It's like, no, 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 it's not, I can't do it. It's not inside of me. And so I have to come to Christ. I have to come to something outside of myself. And this is not even in India. This is actually in New York because in this place, we think that we can do anything, can't we? Sky's the limit, literally. <laughs> How high can you go? Let's scrape the sky. In New York, there is this attitude of humanism that is rooted in an idolatry of human ability that we can do. We can, there's nothing that can stop us. And that is um, pride. And that's a lack of humility but it, when you realize that it's not inside of you, but it's actually inside of your creator, who is the origin of you, then you humble yourself. It causes a deep and incredibly profound humility where we come to God and we say, Lord, I can't do this, and I need you. I need you. And so grace is, is understanding that God is the origin and source of goodness. And to be more precise, the source of grace is the Holy Spirit. In, this, in, in the new covenant, the source of grace is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the giver of all grace. The, in the Holy Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son have, have delegated the responsibility and the role of giving grace to us in the new covenant to the Holy Spirit. And so the Nicene Creed, which is one of the oldest creeds in the church, calls the Holy Spirit the Lord and giver of life. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, 29, calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of grace. And um, in Titus chapter 3, verse 4 to 5, it says, in accordance with God's own merciful design, he saved us with the cleansing power which gives us new birth, and restores our nature through the Holy Spirit, shed on us in abundant measure through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then in Zechariah, famously, chapter 4, uh, verses 6 to 7, it says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. And so we, I love that verse, not by might but, and not by power, but by my spirit. Because again, we, we, we get focused on our ability. I can do it. I can, I can do it. I can do it. And it's, it's not I can do it in, in the New Testament and in the New Covenant and in Christianity. It's, it's I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he strengthens me by his spirit who he, whom he has given to me. Jesus has given us his spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, and, and he actually told his disciples, you know, guys, it's better that I leave. And they're like, what? They're like, yes, it's better that I go, because when I go, then the Holy Spirit can come. And by coming, he gives us his grace. Um, so, he, so God gives us his grace in Christ through the Holy Spirit, uh, for uh, a number of different reasons, um, for the forgiveness of sins, for the redemption for sins, from sin's power, for healing. Um, you know, when people do miracles and heal and pray, pray for the sick and they recover, that is gr the grace of God at work. The grace of God, again, is the cause of all the good that happens in the church. So all of the good things. So when we experience, um, when we worship and we, we, we feel the presence of the Holy Spirit, that's the grace of God flowing through the service. There's something special that takes place when we meet corporately. I believe that's like a superfluous grace. But the purpose, again, is a growth in holiness 
ultimately, which is our final transformation into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and so, you know, people talk about grace in a greasy way, greasy grace. And, and that's what D Dietrich Bonhoeffer was talking about when he's talking about cheap grace, uh, where there's no cost for the grace or the grace isn't regarded as costly. And, uh, you know, people are like, oh, there's grace for that. There's grace for that. There's grace, 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 grace. And the, that's not, that's actually not the purpose of grace. The purpose of grace isn't so that we can sit comfortably in our sin and in our wickedness. And, and so that we can have like a, like a, you know, a life jacket for our vices. You know, it's like, hey, I'm still alive. <laughs> grace. You know, it's like. It's like, no, 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 drown the vices. Drown the vices. Don't give them a life jacket. That's not the purpose of grace. And in that sense, you can fall from grace. Grace can be abused. Just like mercy. Mercy can be abused. When you, you know, like, when, when you have a career criminal, right? I don't know if, I don't know if anybody watches poli police activity, but I love it. I probably shouldn't. This is one of my vices because I'm not a Christian, um, which I don't even know why I'm up here if I'm not a Christian. <laughs> well, I have a degree in theology. That's why I'm up here. <laughs> that's a very modern thing to say. I don't believe any of this. I just have a degree in it. Uh, that's why I'm talking about it today. But p there's this YouTube channel called Police Activity, and um, it's, it's, I wouldn't recommend the women watch it because it's pretty gross. Some, some of it, but it's basically body cams on police officers a, as they arrest people showing what happens. And it's very, very revealing um, because they don't edit anything and you see everything from all these different angles. But you see like career criminals, like you see guys who get in trouble with the law and, and then you read the list of like things that they're guilty of and you're like, this guy should have been in jail like 10 years ago, you know? They abuse grace. They abuse the mercy of the judges, right? The, the, the judge shows leniency, and they abuse it, and they're back. Leniency, abuse it, and they're back. Leniency, and they abuse it, and they're back. And then eventually, the police, you know, don't show leniency <laughs> because eventually they get really, they get into a really tough deal, which you can see for yourself if you want to watch that. Anyway, Titus chapter 1. Verse, verse 11 says, The grace of God our Savior has dawned on all men alike, schooling us or teaching us to forego irreverent thoughts and worldly appetites and to live in this present world a life of order, justice, and there's our word, holiness. The purpose of grace is to live a life of order, justice, and holiness. That's the purpose of grace. God's grace is here, absolutely, to cover your sin, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness, but the purpose isn't so that you stay that way. The purpose of grace is to enable you so that he can empower you to live for him, to live righteously for him. And so, um, I'm going to skip a lot of this because I'm behind in my time and I hate, I hate that. So I'm going to skip a lot of my notes here. I apologize. But ultimately, when we, when we get to it, um, grace is transferred um, in our lives in uh, what we call ordinary ways. Ordinary ways. And what do I mean by that? I mean that um, an ordinary means of grace is, what, is basically a way that you get grace um, that is habitual and after a pattern and almost in a way that is predictable, kind of expectant. And um, so what I believe is uh, that God has, and the, the church has established two ordinary means of grace in our lives, okay? And if you don't want to go more than two, okay, great, but, but we have to understand that Jesus establishes means of grace in the Christian life. And what we call those things are sacraments. The word sacrament means sacred mystery. 
A sacrament is an outward and physical or visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So God gives us the sign as a means by which we receive that grace and, uh, and to be a, as a tangible assurance that we do, in fact, receive it. So that when you receive something, it's not like, well, did I receive it or not? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. God, did I? I don't know. And then you spend your entire life thinking, I don't think I received anything. So God, God's like, okay, hold on. Hold on here. I'm giving you this and I'm telling you to do this as an ordinary means so that you can experience my grace. So that you can say, in fact, I have received your grace. Um, I would say the, one of the predominant ways is communion. Communion throughout church history, this is not heresy. And the reason why it's not heresy is because this is what the church has taught for not one, but two thousand years, okay? <laughs> two thousand years. So you read all the early church fathers, they would teach this. And they weren't heretics. They were very orthodox people. Uh, this is found in scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. It says, we have a cup that we bless. Is not this cup we bless a participation in Christ's blood? Is not the bread we break a participation in Christ's body? You are, he, th that's a, those are rhetorical questions that Paul is saying, asking. He's, he's, he's saying, is this not what it is? By taking the, 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 the bread and the wine, by taking those elements, we are participating in Christ's body and blood. What's a sacrament? It's a sacred mystery. Because that's the next question, right? Well, how? Gabe, how does that work, Gabe? Tell me. Well, I don't know how it works, bro. It's a mystery. If, if I could figure it all out, we wouldn't call it a mystery, would we? But it's still true, even though it's a mystery. Jesus, as fully God and fully man, try to figure that one out. I don't know how that works, but I know it works, and I know it's true. And I know that the church has believed that for 2,000 years. So I would rather, if I'm going if I'm, if I'm to make an error, I'd rather err on that side of all the evidence being there <laughs> rather than err on the side of me just not having enough faith. Does that make sense? Me just saying, yeah, I don't really believe that because I just find it incredible. So a sacrament is a sacred mystery, and I believe um, the, two the two sacraments um, that the, I believe are generally necessary for salvation as, as institutions are baptism and Holy Communion, also called the Lord's Supper or Eucharist or whatever. Um, so these are sometimes called the sacraments of the gospel. And uh, the reason why is because Jesus Christ instituted these. This is not Gabe's opinion. This is not what Gabe instituted. Gabe didn't break bread and pass a cup around before he died and say, everybody, I want you to do this in remembrance of me continually and continue to practice it, okay? Because I'm the founder of this religion here. This isn't me. This is Jesus. Jesus is the one that commands us to be baptized. So Getting into the first of the sacraments, uh, the, the, the ordinary means of grace, is baptism by water. Baptism by water. So that is the first, and that's what we're, we're, we're going to cover in the next 10 minutes. Isn't that wonderful? Great. All of that was just preamble, folks. <laughs> you haven't even started the book. Here's chapter one. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's all a part of the book. Okay, so... Um, the foundation is the hardest part. I just wanted to tell you that, okay? When you're building a building, the longest, the longest bit to work on is the foundation. So everything else is going to be easy from here on in. So water baptism, what is water baptism? It is when we are fully immersed in water, and water being the outward symbol, because every sacrament has an outward sign or an outward physical symbol of an inward spiritual grace or an inward spiritual event. And so water baptism is when we are fully immersed in water as a public profession 
of our faith in Jesus Christ. And so in that sense, baptism, <coughs> baptism has been called the sacrament of faith. When people are like, oh, all you need is faith. Well, yeah, and the thing that goes along with that, which is baptism. <laughs> if you have faith interiorly, wonderful, then get baptized. That's what I say. Um, so uh, the, the question uh, can arise, why should we be baptized then, Gabe? Just because you say to get baptized? Well, there are two good reasons. The first is um, that Jesus was baptized. So that's, I mean, that's a good reason, right? Jesus, you know, was doing it. So if it's good enough for Jesus, I suppose it's good enough for me and you. Um, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John the Baptist at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him from being baptized, saying, I need to be baptized by you, Jesus, and you are coming to me to be baptized? You know, that sounds more biblical to me, right? I think the biblical response when you see Jesus coming to you to be baptized is like, no, 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 wait. <laughs> I have a whole Bible that says that you are the one that needs to baptize me. So John is trying to be maybe too biblical here, trying to read the text improperly. Jesus says, no, no, no. He answered him and says, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to, be, to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and beheld, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. What translation is this? And suddenly a voice came. I chose it, actually. I don't even know what it is. And suddenly, it better not be NIV, I'll tell you that much. The, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and he says the reason is to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus lived, okay, as God and man, fully God, fully man. But his life as a man was so that he could set an example for you and I. So that when he says so that all righteousness might be fulfilled, the idea is that he's setting a pattern so that he's saying, I need to be baptized so that people know that they're supposed to be baptized. Jesus did not need to be baptized because he was totally perfect. He had no need for baptism. But the guy is so humble that he doesn't just do what he needs to do, what he has to do. He does what is extra, and he shows us. He says, no, no, I am actually setting a pattern and an example by my, by, by my behavior for what you are supposed to be doing. So the purpose of our baptism is to be like Christ and imitating him in his baptism. Number, number two, the reason why we're supposed to be baptized, and this is, you know, just a small little one, but it's because Jesus commands us to be baptized. <laughs> you know, he just commands us to be baptized, okay? So Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 to 19, uh, he said, uh, Jesus came to the 12 and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Wait, nations are supposed to be discipled? I thought it was just like little church groups in little New York City. We're supposed to disciple nations? Christian nationalism. No, I'm kidding. Okay. I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to get in trouble. Not being political here, but Jesus said we're just so supposed to disciple nations. Okay. <laughs> baptizing, moving on, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So we're supposed to baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is a command. This is a command. Okay? And we're supposed to use those words. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when we baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, um, they are properly baptized. And that's actually such an interesting thing because those words do matter. And um, it doesn't, you know, <laughs> to be honest with you, you could be baptized by some guy who's not even a Christian. And as long as they use those words, you're good. <laughs> 
That's the funny thing. As like being baptized into the water, into the name of the, whole, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's all that's necessary. It doesn't say that the person baptizing you has to be, you know, um, some, you know, uh, Christian celebrity pastor or something like that. You know, it's like, Paul the Apostle is like, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you guys in, in, the, in the Corinthian church. He's like, I think I baptized one guy. Because that's, that's what the Corinthian church were all on about. They were like, I was baptized by Peter. <laughs> kind of a big deal. A lot of anointing on me now. Just, just more anointing because it was Peter, you know? And um, no, it's God, the Holy Spirit gives his and distributes his grace equally. I love that. Uh, man and woman alike. Uh, in Christ, there's no male nor female in that sense, no slave nor free, uh, no Roman or no uh, barbarian. God gives his grace equally in baptism to everyone. Okay, so let's really quickly go through the inward and spiritual um, effects of grace uh, in baptism. So there are five effects in baptism, okay? The first effect of baptism is the remission of sin, which is the remission precisely, it's the remission of original sin, the remission of original sin. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, it says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So the remission of sin uh, by baptism, um, in baptism we are washed, and by being washed, we are sanctified and justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the remission of sin is a big deal. Um, when we, when we be get baptized, we are even, even cleansed. So in sin, there's original sin, and then there's actual sin. Now, some people are cleansed of original sin, but then the actual sins are kind of still lingering. In baptism, you are cleansed of both original sin, which is the stain of sin upon upon you because of the guilt of sin upon you because of it you, you're a, a part of adam's lineage which is connected to the fall of man but then you have actual sins in your life and those are also cleansed okay the second effect of baptism is the remission of et of eternal punishment due to sin the remission of eternal punishment due to sin uh in john chapter 3 verse 36, it says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God rests upon him. Um, to be honest with you, the wrath of God rests on everyone who's not a Christian. When people are like not Christians and all of their life is all messed up, it's because the wrath of God rests on them. Now, that's a really difficult message, right? People are like, how can you say that to people? Well, I didn't. The Bible does. The Bible says if you don't believe, the, so the truth is, is that when we talk about the wrath of God, we have to be very careful. God is not, God does not hate anything that he makes. God hates what he doesn't make. And God does not make sin. So God hates your sin. And the closer that you get to your sin, and the more stubbornly that you hold on to your sin, God begins to hate the sinner. There is a point where God judges the sinner for his sin. Does that make sense? So it's, it's God, God's natural disposition is love towards all of his creation. God loves all of his creation. But, but as his creation, we have free will, and we get to choose what we want to do. And so if I stubbornly dig my, you know, dig my heels in and I say, Lord, I'm not changing, and I, I, I love my sin— you know, and I refuse to acknowledge God. I refuse to acknowledge the gospel of God. It's like clearly the wrath of God is, is, is the due punishment for that. And what ends up happening is people are on, people who are uh, intransigent about their sin, they are on a trajectory to hell. They are going to hell. 
And um, that is the purpose of salvation. I mean, that's bad news, right? It's horrible. Um, but God is a God of justice. I mean, we want justice for everyone else but ourselves, don't we? <laughs> you know, like justice for, you know, justice for this guy who suffered something publicly, or the justice for that person, or, you know, we want justice. We want justice when it comes to people hurting us, but we don't want justice when it comes to us hurting God. When we sin, we, of we offend God. If I offended you, you want justice towards me, right? If I stole money from you, you want your money back. Well, what happens when we steal from God? Does he not want justice? Well, he's a just God, so he has to. So justice in God, and this is what Pastor David talks about in his book, Good Kills, is justice is rooted in, in God. Okay, I have to really move along here. I'm not going to spend too much time, more time on that, but the wrath of God is real, and we are saved from the wrath of God, which is his vengeance upon sin uh, by, by the grace of, of Christ. Number three, the effect of baptism is the grace of regeneration. Regeneration is, uh, uh, Jesus explains it here in John chapter three. Jesus answered Nicodemus and said to him, most assuredly I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? <laughs> Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Good question, Nick. Jesus answered him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus Christ wants us to be born again. And in... Um, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5 or 17 it says therefore if anyone is in Christ he is born again he is a new creation the old creation has passed away and behold the new has come that's the meaning of being in Christ Colossians chapter 3 verse 9 and 10 says do not lie to one another don't don't tell each other lies seeing that that you have put off the old nature with its practices and have put on the new nature, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So when we are baptized, we are born again. I believe there's a born-again experience that can happen at baptism. If you don't believe that, that's on you. But I believe that in baptism, we are given a new uh, a, a new spirit. I believe there's a full completion that takes place in regeneration. Number four, virtue is infused into our lives. That's another effect of baptism. Virtue, specifically faith, hope, and love, they begin to work in our lives, uh, and that those virtues draw us closer into relationship with God. Galatians chapter 5 verse 6 says, once we are in Christ, circumcision, which is actually circumcision in the Old Testament, was kind of their means of baptism, inaugurating and initiating the Jew into the people of God. Paul says, no, 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 in Christ, circumcision means nothing, and the want of it means nothing. The faith that finds its expression in love is all that matters. So we trade uh, uh, circumcision for baptism, and in, in baptism, we have this access of faith, hope, and love. Faith that works or finds its expression in love. Number five, uh, the effect of baptism is incorporation into Christ's body and, and uh, being adopted as, as God's children and heirs of heaven. So, Romans chapter 6, verse 1 to 4 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ have, well, were baptized into his death? We were buried with him by baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, we too might walk in newness of life. So baptism is the means by which we have uh, life in Christ. 
we are buried with him through the water of baptism and we are raised to newness of life as we uh, uh, come out from the water. So that is, those are the five effects of baptism. Um, now, really quickly, the last two things are this, the requirements for baptism. What is, what is required for baptism? I'm going to give you two points here really quickly. The n- number one thing that is required for baptism is a word that we don't like to use in church ever because I call it crowd thinner, all right? It's the word repentance. Repentance is required for baptism. And really quickly here, we have to understand that baptism by water did not begin with Jesus. Baptism by water began with John the Baptist. John the Baptist came, and when John the Baptist came, he came preaching repentance. Water baptism was a baptism of repentance as it began. And so we carry that water baptism through the church and that Jesus himself was baptized into John's baptism. What was John's baptism? A baptism of repentance. What is repentance? Well, essentially, repentance is receiving the conviction of the Holy Spirit for your sin. In in receiving the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you become what's called contrite. You become broken. You you sorrow over your sin. You become remorseful over your sin. You regret your sin. You think of it and you say, if I could go back and do that again, I would not do that again. That is contrition. And then out of that contrition, you have confession, which is owning your sin and saying, Lord, I am guilty of that sin. And then restitution or what's called confrontation. And you go back if you have to go back and you restore and make restitution for the sins that you've committed. So if you stole five bucks, you don't say, God, I'm really sorry, but I'm not giving it back. Repentance says, God, I'm really sorry, and I'm going to give the five bucks back. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, be like Zacchaeus and give fourfold what I stole back. That's real repentance. And out of that moment in, with Zacchaeus, Jesus said, salvation has come to this house because he repented. The second requirement of baptism is faith. You have to have faith. I will say this, you can go through the waters of baptism and if you are insincere in your faith, I don't believe they actually have an effect, which is ironic because they're a means of grace. But we can resist the grace of God by unbelief. We can resist the grace of God by creating obstacles to the grace of God, just like I could I could block out the sunlight that's shining into this room by putting drapes up. We can put drapes up in our soul and block the grace of God from trying to enter in. So we have to have faith. And um, really quickly, in Acts chapter 2, Peter said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know, he's preaching, and he says, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people, when the Jews heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what must we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, I just want to end there. Let's stand together and... um, Lord, I just thank you. I thank you, Father, that you have given us a means of grace. I thank you, Lord, that you have not left us orphans. You have not left us in a way that we have to figure things out on our own. Lord, you have left us with instructions. You have left us with institutions that are from your mouth. From They are orders from you. And so, Lord, we want to be obedient to you. And we want to recognize the wonder and the amazingness of the power of baptism in our lives. Lord, we want to, we want to uh, recall our own baptisms for those of us who have 
who have were once baptized, Lord, I pray that you would remind them of the effects of baptism in their life, that they would recall those things, uh, even the promises that they made to you, the vow that they made to you of, of believing in you and, and trusting in you and dedicating their lives to you, Lord, they would truly uh, uh, have an, uh, an experience with your Holy Spirit now reminding them of what happened to them in the grace of baptism. We thank you for your power, your grace, that work in us, changing us, helping us in every way. And we thank you for your word that also does that. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We really believe that God wants you to know him in a personal and tangible way. If there's any way we can assist your journey, please reach out to kcnyc.org. In the dark.